0: Welcome back to True Crime This Week with James Renner. Hey, uh, this is episode two, and I just want to thank everybody for subscribing and liking and all that. Um, the reviews and the likes and the subscriptions, they uh, they help a lot, especially with new podcasts. So if you can take like 30 seconds and and, and do something like that, that would be super, super fantabulous, as they say. Uh, anyways, let's get started. I've, I've got some good news, True Crime Addicts. We have survived another week. It's Friday, October twenty second, two thousand twenty one, and these are the top true crime stories in the world. The uh, top story remains uh, the hunt for Brian Laundrie. Um This is uh, the, it's been the top story for for a couple months now. Um, as you know, Gabby Petito left with her boyfriend, July second, for a four month adventure, misadventure. Uh, They were part of this van life group, and um, she and her boyfriend, Brian Laundrie, uh, headed out um, into the the wilds of America uh, and documenting on Instagram and things like that. Um, And then Laundrie uh, uh, returned home to Florida without her September 1st, and uh, everybody was like, where's... You know, where's, where's Gabby? And he was tight-lipped, and, and the parents lawyered up. And, and then September 19th, uh, Gabby's remains were found at Bridger-Teton National Forest. And uh, it was what everybody expected. We're dealing with a homicide here, Brian being, of course, the, the main person of interest and in all that. Well, the, the news this week is that this Wednesday, remains were found in a Florida swamp, Uh, His parents had previously told police that um, he was heading out uh, and when he disappeared um, was planning on going to this park that was part of a nature preserve, the Swampland in Florida, and that's the last they had heard of him. Um, The family's lawyer told CNN that uh, Brian Laundrie's parents informed FBI that they wanted to visit the park. It had been closed um, since his disappearance and it had just reopened, I think, on like Tuesday, and and the parents reached out to the FBI and said, hey, we want to go to this park, we want to look for our kid. The police met them there, and Chris, this is Brian's father, he ventured into the woods. Uh, Roberta, his mother, started walking down the trail. Uh, shortly thereafter, Chris located a bag and says he, he took it so reporters wouldn't get it, so he, he, he puts his hand on this, this evidence and, and, and takes it away. Um, Very odd thing to do. Uh, Shortly after that, police found a backpack near some human remains, showed them a picture of the laptop on a cell phone computer or uh, a cell phone, and um, they identified it as, as believing to be Brian's backpack. And they're like, well, we found human remains here. And then they asked the parents to leave. At that point, all this became a crime scene again. Uh, it, it seems as though these remains were likely there for a while. There's been reports that they were underwater um, and that had recently gone back out and revealing these bones. Uh, it looks like they were pretty deteriorated because uh, they seem to be using DNA to uh, in an attempt to identify that this is in fact Brian laundry. Um, but uh, ongoing, They've got these people protesting outside the Laundry Family home. I heard a clip of them this morning, and you've got people out there yelling uh, at the at the laundries, um, saying their son's in hell and they're going to be joining them soon. Uh, they're getting DoorDash delivered. People are donating food and sending it to these protesters for DoorDash through DoorDash. Um, uh, the the case itself, and I've seen this happen before. Um, you know, specifically in the Maura Murray case, but also, you know, any high, um, highly profiled case, it, it slowly uh, and eventually turns into a religion for these people. They have to talk about it every day. They have to meet up. They have to, you know, they, they, they turn these certain people into, into saints and, and martyrs, and it gets really gross, um, and it seems to be happening here. Hopefully, if these remains are, in fact, Brian Laundry. It'll be a step towards some closure in this case, and we can and we can move on. Um, the the uh, testing of the DNA and the identification though could take a couple weeks, but um, so I, I guess that rumor from last week that you know people on TikTok were seeing a hand coming out of the laundry's flower bed and suggesting that there's an underground bunker uh, was probably not true. Uh, another top story this week was. Um, related to the parkland shootings on wednesday uh, nicholas cruz pleaded guilty to 17 counts of first degree murder for sh- for the shooting that took place at Marjorie stoneman douglas high school in parkland florida that happened on valentine's day in 2018 um, there's been a f- many shootings since then so let me refresh you about the details of that case um, cruz entered the school and he was 19 years old that day by the way just a 19-year-old young man, um, entered the school with his AR-15-style semi-automatic rifle, began shooting at students and staff. There's a teacher, Ivy Shamus, who was teaching a lesson that day about combating hate uh, in her Holocaust history class. And and at that time, Cruz fired into her room, killing two students. Uh, After the killing... After he killed 17 people, Cruz dropped the gun, blended into the crowd, leaving the school, walked to the mall to get a soda, and was arrested a short time later. Like I said, he was only 19. He'd purchased the AR-15 legally in Florida, by the way, even after the police had called, had been called about 45 times for his alarming behavior by neighbors and people that knew him. I mean, they said this guy was a ticking time bomb and, and planned to shoot up a school, um, and that wasn't enough to keep them from purchasing this AR-15. So what is the purpose? Have you seen the picture of this AR-15? If you, if not, go Google it if you're not a gun person. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a serious weapon. Um, what is the purpose of an AR-15? Uh, gun nuts suggest that they're great for hunting, though it's it's hard to think of a scenario where you have to unload 100 rounds into a herd of deer. Um, it's like uh, essentially... You you know you know what it reminds me of is those uh, you go into those seedy gas stations and you go up to the register and sometimes they'll have that little box of um, gas station roses which are in these glass little glass tubes and they're these tiny roses and it's like give this to your loved one or whatever it's kind of a, a don't ask don't tell wink wink nudge nudge kind of thing because you know what those roses are for. I, I didn't know this. I had to ask a cashier years ago. I'm like, well, you know, what's the deal with those things? And uh, what you do uh, is they're crack pipes. That's where you get your crack pipes. You go up and, and you – the rose is just, you know, for show. Um, you, you buy the crack pipe and then you take out the rose and, and you smoke your crack. Um, and, you know, in the same way that AR-15s are, are meant for hunting – We all kind of know they're not for hunting. AR-15s, by the way, is is the weapon of choice these days for spree killers in the United States. Uh, An AR-15-style weapon was used in Sandy Hook, uh, the 2017 Las Vegas shooting, and the 2015 San Bernardino attack. Uh, Other countries, by the way, have taken action after spree killings using the AR-15-style weapon. Not the U.S., though. Um, For instance, in 1996, Port Arthur... Uh, Tasmania, there was this massacre where 28-year-old Martin Bryant used a Colt AR-15 rifle to murder 35 people. And that prompted Australia's National Firearms Agreement, which provided a, a firearm buyback program where uh, people turned in 650,000 guns in exchange for a small amount of money. Um, and today, if you want a weapon, if you want a gun, in uh, australia you need to uh you need to have a genuine reason for doing so um for instance if you want to protect your farm from uh from dingoes uh that would work Um, but you can't just get one because it looks cool on the wall all right um the uh third top story this week is from across the pond if you haven't heard about this it's it's weird um this concerns Sir David Amis, um, that's a member of Parliament in the United Kingdom. Last Friday, Sir David Armis was stabbed to death while meeting with constituents at a Methodist church in Leon Sea, That's on the coast of eastern England. Um, Wednesday of this week, prosecutors charged 25-year-old Ali Harby Ali with his murder, according to The Guardian. Um, that's kind of a big deal. It, it, it would be like if here in the States, uh, a member of Congress was was murdered in front of a, a group of people. Um, the, the police are saying that there seems to be a terrorist motivation for this attack, uh, citing religious and ideological motivations, uh, which is a little strange to me because they're alleging that this is a – Um, evangelical uh, Muslim-tied murder. Um, But um, Armis himself was was very conservative. He was a member of the Conservative Party. He opposed abortion and same-sex marriage. Uh, He wanted to reintroduce capital punishment. Uh, He also supported Brexit. And when the Harvey Weinstein scandal was going on, I don't know why anybody asked him, you know, who cares what what Sir David Armis uh, Amis's opinion was of that whole thing. But he did say when, uh, when asked about what the victims were saying about Harvey Weinstein, he said, uh, the victims were dubious to say the least. Um, so he had some conservative views still. This is a, uh, it's a major tragedy. Um, and on the, the role of, uh, gun control as this episode seems to be diving into this week, um, you know, some advocates of, uh, uh some gun advocates would point to this and say, look, you know, they got rid of guns, but, you know, this member of parliament was still stabbed to death. Um, but that's why you have one victim instead of 40 in this case. So, hey, um, we're going to uh, hear a word or two from our sponsors. I'll be back in two and two with some cold case updates. Welcome back to True Crime This Week with James Renner. Uh, Here are some cold case updates. Justice moves slowly in the Kristen Smart case. On Wednesday morning this week, Paul Flores entered a plea of not guilty in the alleged 1996 murder of Kristen Smart, according to the San Luis Obispo Tribune. His 80-year-old father pleaded not guilty to being an accessory to the crime. Trial is set for April 25th. Now, this is a very strange case. If you're not familiar with the Kristen Smart case, it was a very big case, so you've probably heard of it, um, but uh, there's no body. They, they, they don't have Kristen Smart's body. Uh, they don't really have DNA. It's a very tough case for the prosecutors. It should be interesting to see what happens as the trial gets closer. Um, Kristen Smart was in her freshman year at California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo which is, uh, that's a small city about halfway between San Francisco and Los Angeles in California. She had attended an off-campus party at a fraternity house, and she was found passed out on the neighbor's lawn uh, towards the end of the night. Um, two people um, helped her to her feet, and another young man joined. That man was Paul Flores. Uh, the, the, the young couple uh, walked... Uh, Kristen most of the way back to her dorm, and and then they they took off and left Paul to walk her the rest of the way. Um, Now, Paul says he walked her as far as his dorm room and then let Kristen walk the rest of the way alone. Uh, He was the last person to see her. She disappeared, never to be found, and that's where it had stood for many years. Um, Police Early on, the police thought maybe she had taken off. Had a little vacation, get her get her mind right, kind of like the Moore Murray case, um, and she so for one of the, that's one of the reasons she wasn't reported missing for after a week. Um, while she was missing, you know, for a while, people wondered if Scott Peterson might have been a suspect in the case, might have been responsible. They kind of ruled him out. Um, cadaver dogs found a scent on the Flores property, um, and police in their complaint, and when they arrested Flores, they said they believed a body was buried beneath the deck at Ruben Flores' home. That's that's his father's house. Uh, There was a little uh, kind of uh, crawl space beneath the deck behind some lattice, and that's where they supposedly found some signs that a body had been there and had been moved. But it's a very difficult case. Any case without a body is difficult. But here you don't. I mean, they, they have some bodily fluid, but I don't think that's definitively her DNA. Um, so it should be interesting. Here's another story: Jeremy Critt and the Daily Beast. That's a Jeremy's a reporter for the Daily Beast. He, Beast. They got the scoop on what really happened to forty-three students who disappeared in Mexico in two thousand fourteen. This is a this this is a frightening case. It's it it reminds me of like a like a horror book like a good uh you know scott smith um you know stephen king type of thing um these 43 students were known as the uh let me see if i can get this name right ayat anapa 43 the ayat 43 um 43 male students from ayat rural teachers college they were they were headed to iguala mexico to protest on the anniversary of the 1968 uh, Tadaloco, uh Massacre. Now, that's an incident that happened in '68, where uh, the Mexican military killed hundreds of protesters that were protesting against the upcoming Olympics, and that was, that was, a, it was a massive cover-up. It was, it was a terrible thing. So these 43 students, all, all male, from this teacher's college, they were headed to join this protest, and, and then they just disappeared. And for years, we wondered what what happened. How did forty three people just disappear? Well, uh, the Daily Beast got a hold of some of these text messages um, that were sent between a dep- deputy police officer and the head of a local cartel. Uh, turns out that those students commandeered a bus that they <laughs> that they used or wanted to use to get to the protest, and the bus was secretly loaded with heroin that was meant to cross the border into the U.S. So they accidentally stole a bus. Well, didn't, you can't accidentally steal something, but they didn't realize what they had. They didn't realize that the bus they were taking was uh, uh, loaded with heroin from the Guararas Unidos drug cartel. And uh, so we, uh, the Daily Beast found these texts um, that mention that show text between the deputy and uh, the head of the cartel, this guy Lopez, uh, Lopez is on there saying he needs uh, these students. And he says he has beds to terrorize them. And he sets an exchange uh, location with the police officer. Um, he says he wants them all. And meet, let's meet at Wolf's Gap. And the deputy says, make sure you bring enough men to handle the job. And apparently he did, because uh, all that's left are very, very small bone fragments that were eventually found. Um, but uh, what, what a horror story there. Uh, you, you, you take the wrong bus, and, uh, and you get disappeared by the cartels down there. Uh, the deputy, by the way, was eventually arrested. He's in, he's in prison. Lopez, on the other hand, was arrested but w- was released, and, and then he disappeared. He remains at large. Um, let's move to some genealogy news, uh, genetic genealogy, this new tool that the police have to find these bad guys. It's solving cases pretty much every day. Uh, the DNA Doe Project has solved another one. Um, DNA Doe Project is run by my good friend, Margaret Press, uh, also a mystery author, um, and just a nice person. Uh, this is the case of the Marion County John Doe. And this is, uh, this is the story behind it. Chil- children, playing on a rainy day in July of 1989, found a shoe near Flat Rock Run Creek. This is in Ohio, Marion County. The Marion County Sheriff's deputies discovered the body of the victim entangled in brush near the creek bank and located be- behind a home on Harding Highway East. That's uh, Highway 309 if you're from here. This is east of Caledonia. Ohio. Forensic analysis indicated the victim was a Caucasian male between 20 and 20, 22 and 35 years old, approximately 5 foot 9, weighed around 140 pounds, black or brown hair, and a slight beard. The un- unidentified man wore several layers of clothing, including a flannel shirt, a multicolored knitted sweater, red socks, Adidas brand sneakers. They had lots lot to go on, but they couldn't figure out who this was. Uh, investigated to determine the manner of death ...was a homicide, and he died by suffocation. Not a good way to go. So they identified this this uh, victim uh, just last week, uh, and his name was John Krasinski. And they contacted his family. They uh, His family um, said he had a habit of disappearing, and he once called from Michigan asking for a ride home... This was back in, like, 1989. Um, He was never reported missing for that reason because he had this habit of kind of just walking away for a bit. Um, And this is also from DNA Doe Project's website. After Detective Christy Utley uh, approached DNA Doe Project about this case in late spring 2019, tissue samples were sent to DNA Solutions. As uh, insufficient DNA was obtained, additional extraction was performed. At the international commission on missing persons in the hague that's a big deal finally after successfully sequencing and bioinformatics a file was uploaded to GedMatch and ftdna that's family tree dna which provided good matches for the john doe's uh whereabouts and identity according to the team the primary clue in the case was the amount of eastern european ancestry revealed by the doe's mixture Finding a family line with the same mixture, the team was able to identify a family member who was missing after the discovery of the remains. So good work. Again, DNA Doe Project. Um, Over on the Unresolved Mysteries subreddit, on Reddit, uh, you'll know that's kind of a place that's frequented by true crime addicts and has uh, some really weird cases that you've never heard about popping up every week. This is one that's only tangentially related to true crime, but worth mentioning because it's so cool. Uh, this, uh, so here's the deal. Uh, the guy, remember that Death Valley Germans case? There's a guy who solved that, and he now thinks he's figured out the secret behind the recent rash of UFO sightings in America. This story comes from Redditor, uh, the, who uses the moniker... Some kind of purgatory. So, thank you. Some kind of purgatory. Um, this concerns the theories of one Tom Mahood. Mahood is an amateur sleuth, just like you and I, and blogger. And he helped solve the Death Valley Germans case. Um, if you don't remember that case, it's it's it was kind of strange too. Um, this was back in July, 1996. Four Germans on vacation to the United States disappeared. ...during a trip into Death Valley National Park. Um, The four Germans were from Dresden and included 34-year-old architect Egbert Rimkus, his son George, 11 years old, his 27-year-old girlfriend Cornelia, and her four-year-old son Max. Uh, And in October 1996, the rental minivan was discovered in a remote area of Death Valley National Park. It had three flat tires... The wheels were damaged from rolling over rocks. Uh, inside the van, they found new sleeping bags, uh, or a new sleeping bag, a tent, toys, a, um, a, a jack uh, that was never used. The family was nowhere to be found. Uh, the cause of. Uh, so uh, flash forward to November of 2009 when Tom Mahood, along with a guy named Les Walker, They found the remains of Egbert and Cornelia, the two adults, Uh, and nearby were items like uh, Cornelia's passport and bank ID, and the coroner later ruled that their death was likely caused by heat stroke. The average temperatures in Death Valley around the time they went missing are about 116 degree Fahrenheit. Uh, You can die pretty quickly out there. Um, So... These rash of UFO sightings, I don't know if you you enter that world at all, but um, there's been a lot of news about it over the last couple of years, uh, centered around this 2004 encounter aboard the USS Nimitz, uh, where uh, jet fighters were scrambled to uh, find this blip on the radar that they kept seeing. And according to the pilots, they encountered a tic-tac-shaped UFO above the water uh, uh, west of San Diego and they have it on film at least part of it and it's this weird object that suddenly accelerates and makes zigzag movements and then enters the water and there doesn't seem to be any disturbance between the two mediums and it's a very weird video well Tom Mahood has weighed in on this on his website otherhand.org if you want to check it out (laughs) <laughs> and he believes that what we're seeing as UFOs is actually um, a secret government project that utilizes 3D laser pointers. He believes these are high powered proton beams, um, kind of like how people use laser pointers to, um, you know, get cats to chase it around the room. And they see this little object. He says that's essentially the same thing that's happening, only on a bigger scale. And instead of a dot, it's actually a 3D projection, kind of like a hologram. And uh, he, the, the energy for something like that would be tremendous, but a likely uh, one, one vessel that would have that much energy output easily would be a nuclear sub. And they do frequent the waters west of San Diego. So, um that's his big theory that what we're seeing as UFOs are these 3D projections which would explain their movements and how they can enter into the water without creating a disturbance. Um and honestly, it's it's one of the better theories I've I've heard so far. Uh, although it's it's sad to rule out any extraterrestrial presence. So, uh I only mention it because this is kind of like a <laughs> a big name in, in the true crime circles. The guy that solved the Death Valley Germans case now believes he's solved UFOs. Um, my recommendation for pop culture this week, sometimes I'll, I'll recommend a podcast, sometimes it'll be a true crime book. Um, this week, I, 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 I highly recommend the the new uh, book, Chasing the Boogeyman by Richard Chismar. Uh, and here's the write-up on Chasing the Boogeyman. In the summer of 1988... The mutilated bodies of several missing girls begin to turn up in a small Maryland town. The grisly evidence leads police to the terrifying assumption that a serial killer is on the loose, but soon a rumor begins to spread that the evil-stalking local teens is not entirely human. Recent college graduate Richard Chismar returns to his hometown just as a curfew is enacted and a neighborhood watch is formed. Amid preparing for his wedding and embarking on a writing career, he soon finds He soon finds himself thrust into the real-life horror story. Inspired by the terrifying events, Richard writes a personal account of the serial killer's reign of terror, unaware that these events will continue to haunt him for years to come. They're calling this a clever, clever, terrifying, and heart-rending work of metafiction. And what they mean by metafiction is that this book will read like a true crime story. And it's meant to be that way. Uh, When I read it, um it struck me as being up there with you know uh, i 'll be gone in the dark um you know in cold blood the you know the, the the real the real great ones uh and it it has the feel of a true crime story but it's but it's it's not um it's it's fiction at least most of it um a lot of this has been borrowed from chismar 's real life uh there was um kind of a true crime mystery happening when he was a kid in Maryland that uh, parallels some of this. Uh, and, uh, but it's just it's just a damn fine book. Um, and I know true crime addicts will like it. So pick it up. It's called Chasing the Boogeyman by um, Richard Chismar. Uh, now, um, checking the charts. Uh, and this is the Charts Unchartable, which is uh, what tabulates the top true crime podcasts of the day of the week. Uh, number one this week is Over My Dead Body. You've got Crime Junkie uh, always on there coming in at number two. Um, Mandy Matney's M- The Murdaw Murders podcast, which I mentioned last week, is holding at number four after the arrest of Mr. Murdaugh. Uh And rounding out the top ten is Crossing the Line with M. William Phelps. Um if you're not familiar with M. William Phelps's work, he's kind of the goat of true crime, the greatest of all time, some would say. Uh, he was writing true crime before true crime was, was all the rage. Um, you can find many of his books online, uh, but check out his podcast. He's he's always great, always up to something interesting. Um, and that's about it for, for today. I, I am appearing, if you happen to be in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, I'll be at the Ruscommon, Michigan, Public Library next Wednesday, which is October 27th. And uh, I'll be giving a talk that evening about true crime and uh, being a true crime addict. So um, if you're in the area, come out to see. It's about 530, uh, and it'll be a good time. So uh, in the words of the incomparable Murray Saw, it is Friday. And that means we've gotta, 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 get down. Damn it. True Crime This Week is a Fearful Symmetry production. Our theme music is Trashtown Boogie by Mr. Smith, used under a Creative Common license for use in the show. All sources are listed in the liner notes at the end of this episode if you like the cut of my jib please check out my other podcast Philosophy of Crime unless quoted directly from a source all content should be considered the opinion of the host that's me, James Renner see you next week